This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. Relatively few people can say they've scaled Mount Everest, the world's highest peak. And relatively few can say they have already died. Lincoln Hall can say both. On May 25, 2006, Lincoln Hall was left for dead just below the summit of Mount Everest, an apparent victim of altitude sickness. The next morning, though, a group of climbers found him very much alive, sitting cross-legged in the snow. Lincoln Hall is one of Australia's best-known mountaineers, having earned his reputation in the 1980s for being one of the first Australians to climb Mount Everest. But on that trip, he didn't make it to the mountain's summit, The 2006 expedition was an opportunity for Lincoln Hall to reach the peak of Mount Everest, which he did. It was on his descent that year that he collapsed from cerebral edema. The group he was traveling with tried to revive him, but ended up pronouncing him dead and leaving him without any gear lying in the snow. Lincoln Hall writes about his climb, his death, and his subsequent life in his book Dead Lucky, He talked about it in May at the Commonwealth Club of California with Sierra Club Radio's Orly Cotel. As you will hear in this conversation, Lincoln Hall speaks matter-of-factly about having once been dead. So, Lincoln, your story really baffles the imagination here. What does it mean when you say that you died on Mount Everest? I guess ultimately it means that death, as far as the way I see it, isn't... uh, as black and white as I used to think. And I, yeah, so that's, that's sort of why I put it like that. It's also a bit of a attention grabber, I suppose, and uh, because people don't like to... Um, I guess that's one of those things that uh, we, d- we don't have much to do with. And even as a mountaineer with a dozen friends dead over, you know, the 30-odd years I've been climbing, uh, I thought I had a, a fairly realistic... Uh, understanding and uh, impression of death and what it was about, and I discovered that it's actually quite different. So I guess I open up uh, uh, a discussion by making that statement. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about the events that happened on that day and that evening. You summited that day to the top of Mount Everest. It was a lifelong dream of yours. And then what happened afterwards that caused you to be pronounced dead? Hmm... Um, well, actually, just it wasn't a lifelong dream. It, uh, it's just that we could get the sponsorship money more easily. <laughs> and, and you might think I'm joking, but that was, um, that was a real factor. Uh, I started rock climbing when I was 15, and uh, one thing led to another. And, yeah, and I ended up working as a trekking guide and doing a lot of climbing in the Himalaya, and the next, next mountain on the list was, was Everest. I mean, there were other things perhaps we found. We expected to be more interesting as, as a climb, but we felt that the first Australian expedition would be a great thing to do because we'd have no trouble getting funding, which, of course, wasn't true. It's always hard to get funding. But, uh, yeah, so that doesn't answer your question, does it? Which was... Well, let's talk about what you describe in your book uh-huh. that day. Oh, when the 25th. You, you reach the top of Everest. I think for most people they consider that to be the height of difficulty, and I, I don't think a lot of people are aware of how challenging it is to also get down from the summit of a mountain. Yeah, well, I guess one of the, one of the things about uh, the north side of Everest, and I guess the south side as well, is that um, <clears throat> it's... Well, no, definitely on the north side, it's easy to get to dangerously high heights. Uh, in, a, in a technical sense, the climbing up to the North Coal is pretty straightforward, and uh, some seasons it's a bit more difficult than others, but with small steep sections. <clears throat> it was actually very easy in, in 2006. And then from the North Coal, you have a, uh, a climb from 23,000 up to 25,000. That's just a big, long, boring snowplot. Uh, and then from there it gets more interesting, as uh, climbing. And then on the final session, or the si- final segment to the summit from the Camp th- uh, 3, our top camp at... 27,000 feet, the climbing actually gets quite interesting. I mean, there's some easy sections, but there's some definitely some more technical sections which also require more effort coming down, which is the big thing about it. You have a very long summit day there. But everything went very well uh, for me. Uh, I was um, on the mountain to be a high-altitude cameraman, but my two people that I was filming um, had health issues and 
had to give up, so there I was. I could um, go to the summit, which is what I did, and it went very, very well. I was uh, really pleased to get to the summit at 9am in the morning, the whole day ahead of me, and uh, perfect weather. Uh, It seemed like nothing could go wrong, which, of course, you should never think that. Mm. And so what did go wrong on the way down for you? Well, what happened about 100 feet or so below the summit, um, I just was, I was feeling weary. Well, that's not surprising because the reality of, of the heights of Mount Everest, the extreme heights, is that you've, to get to that top camp, you've, you haven't really got much sleep since you left the North Coal. You haven't eaten much. You, you haven't had enough to drink. Uh, your metabolism gets... It's not just the shortage of oxygen. Your metabolism sort of does all sorts of things like make you feel nauseous. and So you really are pretty drained by the time you get to that top camp and then you start climbing at midnight uh, and it's cold enough up there without doing it in the dark. So it's a, it's a pretty intense climb to the summit and by the time you get there, hopefully the sun's up so you can get some nice photos. But uh, what you don't see in the photos is the fact that uh, even when you're breathing oxygen, uh, meaning when you've got supplementary oxygen equipment, uh, you've still only got 50% of the oxygen you might have at sea level. Um, because sometimes also your oxygen mask, gets, the little valve gets frozen up, so you, get, you don't get much, you get even less oxygen. So you're... And because with the hypoxia, what that means is... Um, I mean, the hypoxia meaning the shortage of oxygen. Um, with the hypoxia, you, you become lightheaded. It's, it's harder to make decisions. Back in 1984, when I first attempted Everest, um, we, it was a st- small Australian team, and we climbed without oxygen totally. It was a new route without oxygen. I turned back oh, 1,000 feet or so below the summit because um, I calculated we would get to the top at dark and I decided that that was just too dangerous for me and sure enough that's what happened and um, two of the guys reached the summit one had frostbite that's well his fingers are half the length of mine and mine aren't exactly long and um, so yeah so I know what it's like without oxygen and uh, you really need to when I made those very simple when I did the very simple math when I thought okay I'm at this height it's this time it's going to take this long to get to the summit. And I did that sum three times and I got it right. Very simple math, arithmetic. But you, it was a very... It was like doing, you know, the hardest calculus. You know, it was... So uh, it's very... You're, it's a very marginal place to be. And uh, you don't get that impression from a lot of stories. I think a lot of mountaineers who, who write... Uh, uh, climbing stories I mean that's just part of their life that that hypoxia they don't make anything of it but that's a very big thing on uh, about climbing Everest and um, so even though I felt in very good shape it's still a very tenuous situation and I was tired Uh, I mean we'd only stopped three times in that nine hours and even the, the first time I didn't even want to sit down just because it was cold. Anyway, so, so 100 feet below the summit, uh, I was feeling really tired and that didn't surprise me. But uh, then I became so tired that I felt like, um, you know, I was covered in, you know, like I was made of lead and sinking into the snow. I just felt incredibly heavy. And, and then I sort of don't remember what happened after that. But I do know what happened because the three Sherpas who were with me uh, told me afterwards. And, uh, and basically I was stricken with cerebral edema. Cerebral edema is, is when uh, well, what happens. Cerebral edema you can get in various, various, different, in various different ways, but high, at high altitude uh, it's fluid retention in your, in your, uh, uh, sc- within your skull. It's caused by the, the, your metabolism going haywire due to the shortage of oxygen. And I actually had some Dimox, which is a diuretic, which is an effective medicine for, for, for edema at altitude. But I didn't have the classical symptoms, which is a strong uh, headache across here and double vision. Uh, so, yeah, but I, I have rescued someone with cerebral edema and, and what, what the situation there is, you've got someone who's aggressively and, uh, uncooperative, uh, they just want to sit in the snow muttering nonsense and... Uh, what happened was I was actually did a lot worse than that. I mean, and um, I wanted to go back up the mountain. Apparently, apparently there were three black women up there. I wanted to meet, 
And, uh, and the, uh, so, so I wasn't only just going up the mountain looking for black women, I was also trying to jump off the mountain. I was pulling the oxygen mask off my face. I mean, I was totally delirious. And while I'd collapsed, feeling incredibly exhausted, now that I was... Uh, had this really serious case of cerebral edema. I was just had more. I had energy to burn, and uh, and I burned it. And I uh, burnt the Sherpas' energy as well because they were trying to. They actually put a rope on me and and had to drag me down the slope. And we got to uh, the second step. And um, the second step is. Uh, I guess it's the hard part. It's the equivalent of the uh, the Hillary step on the south side. It's a it's a real bottleneck. It's where people turn back, and. Uh, or, uh, or where they get into uh, trouble. And so the second step's a 100-foot-high cliff, uh, and on the way down, I... Um, well, I, it was funny with the cerebral edema uh, because I, would, I sort of drifted in and out of it, and that isn't really typical. Usually you just get it and you go downhill and you die. And with the person that I'd rescued with cerebral edema, sure, we got him down about two two and a half thousand feet, and he was, he was perfectly fine the next morning, apart from some frostbite. But... Uh, Whereas for me, it, uh, I just sort of drifted in and out. Whenever there was a, a technical section that I had to cope with, some steeper rock and that kind of thing, uh, I was able to sort of come more back into the realistic, into the real world. And, uh, so once you were being uncooperative and, and it was very clear that you were not going to come down the mountain easily... Mm-hmm. The Sherpas had to make a decision at some point whether to stay with you and risk their own lives or to go back. What happened at that point? Uh, well, um, what happened at that point was uh, coming down the second step was quite a, an episode, and uh, we might touch on that again when we talk about death, but the, um, it got to a point where I was so exhausted that I couldn't even move. Uh, Pemba was injured because I'd actually swung into him and, and slapped his leg with my um, crampon, you know, the spiky things you put on your boots. So uh, I didn't realise that till afterwards, actually. But So Pemba was in a bad way. Uh, the, all the three Sherpas were... Four Sherpas then, actually, were uh, exhausted. Uh, Pemba said to me, Lincoln, you're going to have to spend the night here. And it was just on this tiny little space, smaller than this, actually. And uh, with a, you know... 8,000 foot drop over that side and a bit less on this one. And um, so I, I said, well, actually, no, I, I wanted to say, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to spend the night. I'll have a rest and I'll go down. And uh, because that's what I've done on every other mountain where it's suddenly, you know, where things have gone wrong, we've been caught in a storm or there's been some other drama and we're just really pushing it just to get down alive. And sometimes you get so exhausted, you just have to have a rest and then find the little bit of energy that gets you that bit further down and the lower down you get the bit more oxygen and it gets easier so that's what I was going to do but unfortunately I couldn't say that to Pemba because I couldn't even speak I had the words formed in my head but my mouth wasn't obeying my brain or that part of my brain was turned off so and then basically everything went quiet and uh, I enjoyed the sunset yeah and they left you there on the mountain well yeah it was two hours later after not being able to determine any li- any signs of life from me, uh, that the expedition leader Alex Abramov, uh, who was down at the advanced base camp, ordered them to come down for their own to save their own lives. You are listening to Word for Word from American Public Media and a conversation with Lincoln Hall, the Australian mountain climber left for dead on Mount Everest. He recounts his revival and rescue in his book Dead Lucky. He spoke at the Commonwealth Club of California in May. Tell us about the night that you spent alone at the top of the world when you realized that nobody was coming back for you that evening. Oh, well, I didn't realize that. Um, (laughs) I kept looking at my watch. Uh, No, no, I I did have a watch, but I couldn't look at it because it was pitch black. And because I was dead... uh, And because I was dead, the... uh, uh, the Sherpas took my pack, which had useful things like fluid and uh, some extra clothing and uh, uh, flashlights, you know, head, 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 headlights. And, you know, so it was, um, yeah, so I didn't, uh, I, I couldn't look around for anyone because there was no point because it was totally pitch black. Uh, it had snowed, so I couldn't even see the stars. Uh, and, but I, you know, basically I came to, I was um, 
very lucid, uh, incredibly cold. I could feel there was a big cold draft coming from somewhere, so I knew I was on the edge of something. And in the, when I eventually got light, my, my right knee was about a foot away from the, from the precipice. So um, that was interesting. But um, the... Yeah, and in fact, I was left lying down, but when I came to, I was actually sitting cross-legged, so, uh, which is actually quite a sensible position to sit in to conserve, to conserve warmth. Uh, so anyway, so um, then I realised that this was the end because... I knew, I knew where I was uh, and I knew that um, uh, my fingers were frozen already because I, I could tell the wooden feeling of frostbite uh, and I just thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to freeze up here and that'll be the end of it. Uh, but And it's, it, it's so easy to die there because of the hypoxia, because of the hypothermia, because of the dehydration, because of exhaustion and, of course because of the cerebral edema, which is almost a guaranteed killer on its own. so um, And nobody had ever survived at such heights overnight before without well, supplies, right? Well, no, people have survived at that height, but they've uh, always either been with someone else and or they haven't been dead to start with, which was my situation. And... Um, uh, and there's probably only half a dozen people who fit into that category of who have spent night, uh, nights above that 28,000 feet out in the open. So what did you do to survive that evening? Well, I... Um, <laughs> evening makes it sound like, you know... Well, what, <laughs> <laughs> that cold, about, Like a boring evening. How am I going to get through this evening without any interesting conversation? No, it wasn't <laughs> like that at all. But, um, well, what I did was I, I had nothing. Uh, so I had me... Well, I had my brain and my um, body, neither of which were in good shape. But I used my body as a tool. I mean, people sometimes say I'm a tool, so... Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, well, anyway, um, the the all I could do was get through. I just had to get through the night, and then I would see what was what where I was, and then I would be able to make some sort of assessment of what I would try to do next. Uh, but the first thing was to get through the night. I mean, I faced an impossible situation, but you you know, I, I had learnt many years ago. Uh, in my, my early seasons climbing in New Zealand when I gave up, at a, when in fact there proved to be no reason to give up and I thought, well, that was close and I've never given up since so I wasn't going to give up now so I just had to get through the night and what I did was I guess I used, I used the focus that has developed through decades of, of climbing when, when you're on a big climb that's, has a continue, that's continually technically demanding that requires a huge amount of focus because... Um, you've got to be very careful about your climbing. You've got to be aware of the weather. You've got to be aware of avalanche dangers. You've got to be aware of what your other your climbing companions are up to. There's, there's so much you have to bear in mind and keep an eye on a clock as well. And uh, so you develop this sort of a, 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 a focus that really intensifies your, sen- your senses. And that is actually... That's actually one of the, the, the really addictive things about mountaineering is the intensity of the experience. I mean, you just feel like 200% alive rather than just 100. So it's, um, that's the addictive part of it. So that focus that I'd learnt, um, I applied that night uh, and also used the, the focus that I'd learnt through meditation over 20-odd years. And I didn't want to meditate because that could take me into some other state from which I would not return. So I just used that focused on my physical body, being aware of my body. And I tried doing that and then I started to drift off and I thought, well, I've got to be a bit more um, coarse about this, a bit more gross, meaning I, had to, I couldn't just think about, you know, feel my body because I couldn't feel it really. I had to be... I, I was put my arms under my, uh, my hands and my armpits, which helped keep the fingers warm. Not that that was... Well, they were frozen, so I guess they weren't warm, but just cooled my armpits. But... Um, so I tried rocking backwards and forwards, and that was that felt that was sort of almost a reassuring movement. But um, but then I found that it was getting a bit hypnotic. So then I had to sort of rock forwards and backwards, and then I was then I found what was really working. What I found was really working was to um, was to rotate this way a few times, and then change and go the other way because that was a slightly more complex movement i mean it doesn't seem complex at all but when your brain's hardly working it was it was enough to keep me awake through the night so uh and time just seemed to vanish i've got no idea what time it was when 
when I realised, when I suddenly came to, uh, time just didn't become an issue. Now, the next morning, you were found by Dan, is his name pronounced Mazur, Mazur? Uh, Mazur, Dan Mazur. Mazur, yeah. So what's your relationship like today with Dan Mazur, the climber who found you and rescued you the morning after you died and came back to life? Well, good, actually. There were four four climbers, actually, and they all leapt into action. Uh, um, they just saw you sitting there as they came up the mountain? Uh, yes, yes. Well, they. Uh, it was quite an interesting uh, little um, exchange because I said to them, the first thing I said to them was, uh, I started a bit and then I said, I imagine you're surprised to see me here. <laughs> and they were. They'd been told that I'd been dead. I'd been left for dead the previous night. How could I possibly be uh, eloquent enough to say that? And um, uh, But the reason is, the way I see it, is that during that night of just managing to hang in to where I was, hang on to my physical reality, uh, you're just hanging on, just, just hanging on to my physical reality uh, involved me forgetting about what had gone there, what had put me there. Uh, and I wasn't really concerned about what I was going to do next. All I knew was I had to keep a grip on my physical body. And that's what happened, and that's why time sort of vanished, because I was right in that present moment. And so when, um, so when those, those four guys arrived, uh, I was still in that present moment. And um, so I wasn't thinking, oh, thank God I'm got, you know, you know that that's over, I'm no longer there, having suffered all that stuff. And, and or I wasn't thinking, oh, now here's the chance to go down. I wasn't thinking past, present. I wasn't thinking past and future. I was thinking, oh, people, hello. And, uh, so, um, and so Dan quickly established that I wasn't as compass mentis as, as it appeared. Um, I had, there's, there's a fixed rope that goes all the way from the base of Everest up to the summit that the, the commercial expeditions put up cooperatively. And um, so that rope was right there, but because I was dead, I wasn't clipped onto it. Uh, so, um, so Jangbu clipped onto it. Uh, and Miles Osborne, uh, when he heard me say those words, he thought, I must be hallucinating. That man possibly could not possibly be saying that because he looks like he's about to die. And Andrew Brash was in, in, in tears for the same reason. He thought I was going to die. And uh, anyway, Miles gave me uh, something to drink. And, and then, uh, I mean, my book is called Dead Lucky. And the reason for that, well, is there's so much luck involved in this. For instance, uh, Dan was testing uh, a miniature version of a new kind of oxygen system. So he had the regular system and he had this miniature version of a new kind. So how many, how, how, how lucky is it you're going to come across a guy who's got a spare oxygen set at 28,000 feet? So then I was able to, we were all able to, to, to partake of oxygen. So, um, yeah, and they didn't, I mean, we talked, you know, there was a lot of, there was a big debate about ethics after the 2006 Everest season because of various other things that happened but in terms of Dan and his team there was uh, no discussion about whether they should help me it was just what they were going to do they were pretty angry about it thinking well who's let who's left this guy here and, and Miles thought um, at first that I might have been some sort of super climber who's just having a bit of a rest but he quickly realized that wasn't the case <laughs> so um, yeah but there have been other cases, many cases in Everest history, of people walking by someone who's dying in their own quest to reach the summit. Um, yeah, well, I don't really know about that. I mean, it's not something that's featured in the stuff that I've read or the people I've talked to. Uh, certainly in 2006, that was blown up out of all proportion um, because of the issue of David Sharp, who was a British climber who chose to climb the mountain pretty well in the same style that we attempted in 1984. Uh, he was climbing by himself, but there were hundreds of people on the mountain. There was that fixed rope going all the way to the top. Uh, he did have two oxygen cylinders. Uh, I think he ultimately only took one with him. And there were quite a few other climbers who, who travelled like that, like, like that, just had one oxygen cylinder for the final push to the summit. So, I mean, but anyway, he... he uh, he got near the summit, we think, and got back down to uh, around 20, uh, 26,000 feet or, or a, bit, a bit higher than that. And uh, 
In fact, you know, it would have been more like 27,000 feet. And, um, and he sort of sheltered in a, in a cave and, uh, and it appeared that he had died. And 40 climbers went past him in that cave. There was another body who was there, uh, or which was there. I think you'd probably say which one. The body's been there for many years, which it had been. Uh, and so the climbers went up to the summit and it was the 14th of May. It was the coldest night of the season. Everybody... Uh, well, I mean, there were more cases of frostbite that night than, than the rest of the season put together. I mean, it was a really cold season. Very clear skies, mostly. But so um, when people came down, uh, that's when people realised David Sharp was alive. Um, as I was saying earlier about the hypoxia and how you're just hanging in there, a, tr- a very tenuous gris- uh, grasp of reality. Well, that was that was, uh, you know, on the way up when we were going up the mountain. You, you've got the headlamp. You've got a headlamp on, so you can see this sort of area about two feet wide directly in front of you, and that's what you're watching because you don't want to put. You've got to watch where you put your feet because you don't want to go off the edge, all that effort, and you fall off the top. I mean, so you know, it's there's no. You know, there's no... It's not like... And, and people, when you know there are dead bodies up there, you don't go looking for them and, you know, sort of... Um, you know, doing a sort of uh, skater dude's tag on them or anything like that. I mean, there's no, you just don't want to know about it, really. And so uh, it's very easy to walk past someone who's who's uh, who's dead and it's very easy to walk past someone who you think is dead and who's just having a rest because they're not going to take their oxygen mask off and say hello. Um, they're just going to rest because it's quite fiddly getting your mask back on and with your goggles and all that sort of stuff. So, um, there were, But there was a, the message came through, uh, and this is part of the, one of the curses of um, uh, modern communications, is uh, the message, the word got down to, to, to base camp that David Sharp, or this person, they didn't know who he was at that point, was alive. And... Uh, and then it was immediately thought that everyone had known that he was alive and just sort of pushed him out of the way, and that wasn't what happened at all. And it was only on the way down that some people realised he was alive. And uh, there was a Turkish expedition, the leader of that and another Turkish climber spent a couple of hours trying to, trying to stand him up, and his legs were frozen solid. They, couldn't, they didn't bend. I mean, it was amazing that he was alive with frozen legs. Australian mountain climber Lincoln Hall speaking in May at the Commonwealth Club of California. This is word for word from American public media. Now back to Lincoln Hall, who had been pronounced dead and left near the summit of Mount Everest in 2006. What is your view on the climber's code of ethics, as it were? At what point, at what point should someone risk their own life for another climber, and at what point do you need to leave them to die? I guess whenever I've faced a, someone who's in trouble, I've always been there, and I think that's the predominant response. Uh, I think it's a similar sort of ethics that we have in in, uh, in normal life, except I think it's actually probably stronger because, um, you know, as a mountaineer, you are very aware of how dangerous it is and very likely you've had friends who have died. And uh, so... Or you know of people who have died, famous mountaineers. And so it's... Um, and you also, you've, you've, if you've climbed a lot of mountains, you know it's just another mountain and you can always go back. And, in fact, I have a friend who climbed Everest on his fifth attempt. And uh, so, you know, the mountains will always be there. So, and human life won't. If it's gone, it's gone. And I think that a lot of mountaineers are aware of that and so that the, the ethical sense of helping uh, or of... I mean, really what people usually do is they, they, they manage to assess the situation before it's impossible to pull out. But sometimes uh, something like the cerebral edema that I had kicked in, can kick in too quickly that there's no chance to actually get them down. So uh, I think there's actually a very strong ethical um, practice amongst climbers. Um, and I think, you know, you, you get more people walking past homeless people who may or may not be dead on the street, you know. Um, No-one wants to get involved with that scene. What do you think you would have done if you had been one of the Sherpas who left you on the mountain? Do you, do you blame them? Do you harbour resentment for what they did? Not at all. Uh, I mean, the worst possible thing for me would have been uh, if I had survived as I did and, 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 and they didn't. Um, I mean, they had less... They would have been... They left, used less, oxy, less oxygen than I did. I mean, admittedly, they're much more naturally acclimatised, but, um, uh, 
yeah, they were still totally beat, you know, from... We had a 19-hour day coming down and it wasn't just an average 19-hour day. It was when I was trying to jump, go up the mountain and jump off and all that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, so I would, uh, you know, when I got down, Pemba, one of the Sherpas, when I finally got back to base camp, he was there and, he, uh, and the others were, I don't know whether, I think they were packing up somewhere. And, you know, I just gave him this big hug and just sort of was, I was apologising for putting him through what, what I'd put them through and he was just saying it's fine it's okay don't worry you're alive that's that's all and and that's you know that was how what they that was what they were going to do they were going to do uh what they could for me and the fact that they left me at that point at 28,000 feet had they left me where things went wrong for me um by the time Dan Mazur uh and his team got up there they probably wouldn't have been in any condition. They wouldn't have been strong enough to help me, and uh, I'm. And the chances are that much higher up um, that I would, I would have that closeness to death would have been eliminated, and I'd just be dead. So um, they. That was a, the first phase of the the rescue, and then Dan and his team radioed for some other Sherpas from our team to come up with oxygen, and that allowed me to get down under my own steam. And that's really the big difference between me and David Sharp was that. Well, partly I guess I was more mentally active, but also I could walk off the mountain and he couldn't. And the other thing about the fact that there's a third of the oxygen in the air at, at that extreme height is that when you've got a big... And David Sharp was a big guy as well. Uh, if you've got a body that weight, uh, it's, it's almost three times... As, it feels three times as heavy because of the lack of oxygen. You don't have the energy. So it's, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to bring people down from that height, and that's why it's called the death zone. In 2006, which is the year that you died on Everest, 11 other climbers lost their lives to that mountain that year. Is death an accepted or even an expected part of the sport now? Uh, well, if it's not, you're not being realistic. I mean, as a mountaineer, um, I mean, it sounds crazy to think, oh, yeah, well, I might die this time. But, I mean, a good friend of mine, he was uh, the first Australian to climb the six highest mountains without oxygen, uh, told me, hasn't, doesn't, hasn't told his wife this, but um, that every time he goes out... Oh, he's given up now. I mean, he's done his... achieved his goal. Um, he never knows when he goes out the door to the airport where he'll come back. And um, he was part... He was on the mountain during the, the, uh, the inter-thin air disaster as a guide. So... Um, and he did come back. Uh, but... Yeah, so it's... Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very marginal thing, but... Um, it's a matter of being aware of those dangers. And I don't think that death... I mean, it was a particularly bad season. I mean, there were nine Sherpas were killed back in 1922, I think, in an avalanche. And then the next worst season was 1996 with the interthin... I mean, there were the 12 deaths there, not all of them from the storm. Uh, and then there were 11. Well, there were 12 deaths in... Um, Sorry, 1996 there were 12 deaths and then 2006 there were 12 deaths and then I sat up, which brought it back to 11. Uh, so, <laughs> but I guess... Um, so death, it's, you know, it, it, that season, it was, it was, almost, it was almost like a, a trap because the skies were so clear, there was very little in the way of clouds. I mean, there was the odd sort of cloud blowing through, but... Uh, and because there were no clouds, it was so much colder and people who perhaps might have been... People who hadn't done much climbing, who may have been dispirited by encountering a storm, um, uh, weren't turning back because it was just beautiful conditions. And, so, and, and then up at those impossible heights, uh, when things went wrong, they tended to go very wrong. So even with all the dangers, what makes you do it? Why do you climb? Um, well, there's a huge uh, potential for making really bad jokes. Uh, but, um, no, uh, well, actually, you know, I mean, a sense of humour is a very constructive thing. Um, it somehow is some kind of uh, um, optimism there. In fact, uh, laughter involved as a response to danger. So, um, no, it's... Uh, look, I've, I... Uh, 
took to climbing when I was 15 and it was the intensity of that, the engagement with the physical world, uh, the combination of mind and body and, and spirit really uh, that I found addictive and um, I guess it becomes even more intense on big mountains because then there's all those other dangers thrown in. And also I guess in our modern lives we have... Um, uh, I'm sure you here all have got, all got things to do when you go back home and you've got to worry about work or if you're, not, if you're unemployed you've got to um, you know, think about work or you've got relationship issues or whatever it is. Whereas when you're on a mountain you've got... Um, uh, well, you know, you've got a goal. You've got a specific goal and you either get up there or you don't and you either come back alive or you don't. So there's a resolution, whereas I think so often in life... It's, there's no, there's, there might be closure of one thing but the opening of the next and then life is very complicated and your mind gets full of all this stuff whereas on a big mountain you just that becomes your reality and it becomes your total existence really your whole focus is on that So how do you prepare yourself for the mental and the spiritual aspect of climbing? Well the, uh, the spiritual I mean both those things are almost automatic actually um, the physical one requires a little bit more work. Uh, whenever I go on an expedition, as soon as I make the decision to go, there's a, uh, there's a sort of a switch in my mind that, um, that, that puts everything else as a second priority because you've got to start planning. You've got to start planning and preparing. I mean, I guess it is a big psychological um, step and so you've got to sort of harden your mind. Not harden it, but just uh, harden it in the way that becomes something which allows you to push through whatever you're going to face. So there's a, there's a real sort of steely, steely-eyed uh, approach to things. And, uh, uh, and, and it's also, uh, um, and I think I write about it in the book, where I actually got to base camp and started to feel the transformation of leaving everything else behind and just becoming not quite one with the mountain but one with the process of climbing the mountain and that's a very and that's a that's a that's an extraordinarily uh i really welcome that feeling Mm. yeah your wife and your two sons went through the unimaginable um, experience of Hmm. learning of your death and then of course later learning of what some call your resurrection um what was the reunion with your family like, and how has it affected your relationships with them? Oh well, I mean, uh, well, the reunion was actually not a bit, a bit, um, sort of disappointing in a way because um, uh, my wife had changed the locks. No, that, no, that's not true. <laughs> uh, no, no, the uh, it was disappointing because, well, I mean, not, disappointing is not quite the right word. Uh, my wife flew flew to Kathmandu to meet me, and um, I had to stay there for a few days because they they weren't they didn't know whether I was going to survive. I mean, I knew I was going to survive. God, after what I'd gone through, <laughs> but um, so I was there for a week, and another friend had come with Barbara, and so I was sort of. Uh, debriefing with them and that I wasn't really talking to my sons or our dogs and um, uh, and when we got back to ca- when we came back to Australia uh, we arrived late one night and the next morning was the memorial service for a very good friend of mine Sophia who cl- who died three days after I did on Manislu um, uh, uh, there was a big they were in a snowball and the bottom fell out of it a huge crevasse and and and, and she she just disappeared and there was no word from her and the person she was climbing with was lucky to escape with his life. So, I mean, she died. And so that morning we had attended her memorial service and I was just a, a mental and emotional wreck, really, and physical too. And uh, uh, so, uh, so we went to that, 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 that very sad uh, event and then, um, then we, we drove two hours up to our home and where our sons were. And that was great, but, but certainly I guess the joy of the reunion was tainted by, by what had happened to Sue. But in terms of our relationship, I mean, there was never any resentment. It was just um, the way forward. And, and it's, it's made us uh, uh, much closer. And certainly both my sons, I mean, I wouldn't wish it on them. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But certainly that was a, an extraordinary experience that they went through when they they thought I had died, and uh, I think that's the that is the the worst part of all this is is what my family went through. How has the experience changed you? 
Uh, well, I guess... Um, well, the recovery was just a, a huge thing. Um, not that I noticed. I just noticed I was getting better, but there just seemed to be just more better and better to get. It's, it's still sort of going on almost. But, but I suppose in a spiritual and... Uh, in a spiritual way, it's been amazing um, uh, and, and psychological too because there were, there were, there were experiences that I had with... Um, that experience with death, of being so close to death, uh, but still being able to, to uh, sidestep it. I mean, that was an extraordinary experience. I mean, uh, death was there, it was welcoming, it was nothing to be afraid of. But I decided not to take the invitation, and um, and and that was. And I'm not afraid of death. And I thought, as a mountaineer with friends who've died and, and and facing dangerous situations, I thought I had death as understood death. But really, uh, now I'm not afraid of it. And that's an amazing sort of philosophical leap for me. It was actually, yeah, philosophical, metaphysical, and spiritual, I suppose. I'm curious, you lost eight tips of your fingers yep. because of that, that day on the mountain, the whole experience on the mountain. What is that like for you now, every day, going through your life with this, this sign, this visible symbol of what you've gone uh, through? Well, if, uh, <laughs> one of my friends, before I'd had my operation, said, look, because I'm, I'm well, despite the fact that I'm, tra- I'm travelling the States telling my story, <laughs> uh, I'm actually quite modest about what I've done and my friend said well now you're not going to be able to escape it because you're going to be with that's going to be with you for the rest of your life and I thought oh yeah great but um uh look it really it's better than being dead there's no doubt about that and uh I'm not going to get gunk under my fingernails because I haven't got any but um the uh, it's you know it's 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 if in terms I would say that I would say that reaching the summit wasn't worth losing losing my fingertips over, but but the the insights and the understandings that I gained through that experience were worth this, yeah. And I really I can do pretty well. I can do most things. And uh, uh, it's when it's my turn to buy the drinks. Well, my hands just aren't long enough. Fingers aren't long enough to get the change. <laughs> when people ask you how you lost those fingers, do you tell them the whole story? Do they believe you if you do tell them uh, the story? Well, people people are polite enough not to ask, really. Yeah, uh, generally. So, um, but I, uh, I tell them if they ask. Yeah, but it's not doesn't happen. It doesn't happen very often. And often, actually, you don't really notice when I'm just walking along. People are looking in, in the in the shop windows to seeing if their hair is in place rather than looking at my hands. That's true. Yeah. Before all these disastrous events happened, when you were at the top of Mount Everest, what was going through your mind when you're on top of the world at the summit? Well, uh, well, certainly there's a, there's a sort of feeling that there was not a huge elation because that can be a mesmerising effect and people, you know, I just knew that I had to focus on doing what I needed to do, which was taking the view, which I certainly did. There was no, no way I was going to forget that. Uh, but I knew that the, the descent is the hard part. But it was extraordinary. I mean, we were looking down... There was a sea of clouds five or 6,000 feet below which made it just feel even higher. And Everest, the actual summit, when you come from the northern side, you, come, you step about a foot or so up onto the crest to the very highest point. And it's quite narrow. It's about half the width of this sta- the, 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 uh, the stage here. And so it's, there's, very, there's not much room at all on the highest point. And so you're just right there and it's, there's these giant mountains all around um, and uh, um, they look small. And, and everything else looks insignificant. And you think, you, you know, it looks like you can see the curvature of the earth, but you can't, of course. It just looks that way. I mean, it really... And you look up and it looks dark. I mean, you just feel that, you, that if you stepped off, you'd float up. Well, of course, you don't, and I didn't try. But it's, you just feel that you're right on the, lip, the edge of things and you could just go away. You know, it's extraordinary. Do you have plans to try and climb again? Well, I'm rock climbing already, but, um, uh, yeah, look, I don't know, really. And maybe, maybe not. We'll just see what happens. But certainly I, I don't want to go to those extreme altitudes because that cerebral edema hit me and I don't know why and I don't want to risk that again. Lincoln Hall is a renowned mountain climber in his native Australia. 
In 2006, while climbing Mount Everest, he fell ill and was pronounced dead. He was left for dead on the mountainside, without gear, only to revive and then be rescued the following morning. He writes of his story in his book, Dead Lucky, which he discussed at the Commonwealth Club of California this spring. This is Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pancava. During his appearance, Lincoln Hall also took some questions from the audience in San Francisco. Can you tell me, do you think the use of commercial guides and the taking people to the summit, attempting to take people to the summit of Mount Everest, do you feel that has trivialized the, uh, the experience or the event? Um, do you think that uh, somehow it's impacted mountaineering in, a, in ways that are different today than mountaineering was 20 years ago? <laughs> well, I have to say yes to all that, uh, but um, all, all those points. But at the same time, you know, I've been lucky, lucky enough to achieve all sorts of mountaineering uh, goals, as I've said, and... Who am I to to uh, deny the dreams of others? And post ninety six, uh, I think there was a huge rationalisation in how uh, climbing was uh, guided climbing was being done. I think that the uh, you know it's just the way it is. Uh, the world's getting more crowded, and uh, and there's so much. It's much better understanding of high altitude physiology. The gear's better. The communications are better. Better. The weather forecasts are better. So it is really safer than it was. But having said that, uh, it doesn't need much of a change in environmental conditions to create a death trap, and that's always going to be there. And I think the big thing about guided uh, p- uh, people who are guided is. Mostly people who are guided up Everest are, are people who have um, who have done all of their climbs as, as clients. And so they have never had to dig deep into themselves in survival situations because the guide's job is to pull them out of that situation before they get trapped in it. So when high on Everest, where things go wrong, they haven't got that uh, never-give-up uh, uh, attitude built into their psyche and so they die needlessly perhaps. I think it's actually much more dangerous for those people. I mean it's unfortunate that it is a, it is a magnificent place but on the other and it is very crowded but on the other hand you know there's the, the ridge that, the route that I climbed in uh, 2006, there's the original route in, in, from 1953, the rest of the mountain is empty. 99% of the people are on those two routes. If you want to climb Everest and have a, 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 an experience uh, with no one around, the mountain's there. You just might meet some crowds on the top. So it's the Everest experience in its pure form is available if you want it. Loss of oxygen produces dead brain cells. And thus, uh, my question is, have you noticed a diminution in the alacrity or clarity of your thought either immediately after the accident or continuing today? Well, actually, um, regarding the acuity of my uh, brain operations, uh, uh, they've been out of kilter for quite a long time, but, <laughs> but, but uh, what does happen, and I know this from my friends who have done a lot of climbing without oxygen, uh, that there's definite short-term memory loss and, and that can be lasting for those people who've spent a lot of time uh, above 8,000 metres, above 26,000 feet without oxygen. Um, but for my, in my own case, in 2006, um, I had this peculiar situation of... I was started to write my book and I found that um, even though I couldn't write because I had frostbite... I, 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 I could sort of write, but I was trying to dictate, but I could think of everything I wanted to say when I was, when I was, when I was writing, but when I tried to speak it, I couldn't find even the simplest words, you know, like outdoors or something like that. It just wouldn't come. And um, I have a friend who's a psychiatrist, and he said, well, that's not unusual because speech is another level of complexity in the neurological, I guess... Hierarchy, uh, and 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 whereas thought, uh, which is basically writing, is, is classified as thought, um, is a, is a is a 
a lesser level of complexity. And that's why I was able to think of these, these complex words, but I couldn't speak them. It was a very strange feeling. So it definitely does interfere with your mind, but I think that in terms of intelligence and uh, problem solving, I, I have no uh, greater difficulties than I used to have. What has surprised you the most about this entire experience? Well, I guess my relationship with death. One thing I, I haven't mentioned was my first brush, I guess, with death on, that, on the climb was when I was coming down the second step, uh, delirious, stopped for a little sleep for an hour. The Sherpas managed to rouse me and I rappelled down far too quickly, gave myself a big fright, swung back across and grabbed onto a rock and... Uh, was thinking, oh, God, I'm just really frightened and, and um, clinging onto this rock with a little big ledge for my feet, smaller hole for my hands. And then the next thing I know, I'm looking at my back and I'm 30 feet up in space that way, and a, you know, maybe 10, 10 feet up, looking down on myself on the cliff. In fact, maybe more than 30 feet away. And I could see the other climbers, I could see the other Sherpas. And, I mean, I was at that stage I was so mentally incapacitated and emotionally incapacitated i mean i was scared but it wasn't but it wasn't you know it was it was just i was i was basically observing what was happening and the next thing i know i'm back on the cliff so that was an extraordinary thing that's that, that's a, you know in what they call a near-death experience and that was just the beginning of a sequence of near-death experiences the hallucinations i had had the same um i guess Meaning, and there were different meanings there, and it, so that was a whole insight into how the mind works, and and how death is not as black and white, not as one step as we tend to think it is. Lincoln Hall is an Australian mountain climber who was left for dead on Mount Everest. The following day, another group of climbers discovered him alive, sitting cross-legged in the snow. Hall writes about his experiences in his book, Dead Lucky, and he spoke this spring with Orly Cattell of Sierra Club Radio at the Commonwealth Club of California. If you missed part of this hour's talk with Lincoln Hall, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program, as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and hear speakers such as journalist Anthony Lewis on the history of the First Amendment, Fareed Zakaria on the post-American world, and Omnivore's Dilemma author Michael Pollan. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word, for American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pancava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.